0: plushcare.com slash weight loss hello and welcome to the living history uk podcast a podcast for the discerning and knowledge hungry historians out there you can support our podcast and get much more from living history uk by joining our patreon from just one pound and by doing so you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive but for now enjoy this podcast The Viscitudes of a Soldier's Life in Time of War Chapter 1 I was born at Nottingham on the 15th of June 1790 but my parents were natives of Louth in the county of Lincoln to which place they returned when I was about six months old. My father died when I was four years of age. In 1803 I was put apprentice by my grandfather to Mr Foggett overseer of Mr Eve's carpet manufactory In May 1806, I left Mr Foggart, at whose home I had had a very good home, but where I in vain tried to settle, having a disposition to wonder, which left me no rest until it was gratified. I quitted Louth, not without regret, and, frequently looking back as I went along, arrived at length at a place on the Grimsby Road, whence I had the last sight of the noble spire of Louth Church, here, for a moment my feelings overcame me and I was constrained to weep, thinking of the many dear objects which that sight brought to my recollection and that I should never see it or them again. What, however, added to my grief was I had not acquainted my grandfather with my intention to leave Laos and as my friends afterwards informed me that he was very much grieved at my conduct, I suffered a great deal of uneasiness on that account. On my arrival at Hull, by dusk in the evening of the next day, I went in quest of lodgings at a public house, where I was told I was a runaway apprentice, and that they would not harbour me. This repulse had such an effect upon my mind that I dared not inquire anywhere else, but wandered from one place to another till I found a new built house into which I crept for shelter, and laying all night in one of the cupboards with my bundle for a pillow, slept soundly until daylight. About five o'clock I arose and betook myself to the new dock, where I lounged about a great part of the morning in hopes of getting employment on board some of the vessels. At length, my attention was drawn to a large handbill posted upon a wall, advertising for 70 men to man the Anne Privateer, which mounted 14 guns commanded by Charles East Walkden. Inquiring where this ship lay, and being directed to the place, I stepped on board and asked the captain whether he would employ me. He answered, yes, and therefore I began immediately to pull the ropes and assist in anything that was to be done without bidding, being too pleased with my good luck. The sailors with whom I dined gave me great encouragement, saying that we should take some Dutch East India men and all get rich together, but these prospects were not able to prevent my thoughts from going back now and then to the remembrance of the good home I had left and of the resentment I had brought upon myself from my grandfather and other relations by leaving my excellent situation. After dinner, we again got to our employ. There was sufficient work for all hands. Some were painting, others bending the sails, and a few were taking water and provision on board. There was a boat suspended by tackles from the fore and main mast, and another on the boat deck, one of the men being ordered to let go a certain rope or tackle, He, by mistake, let go the one that held the former boat, which fell upon the back of the head of one of the prize masters, forced his chin on the edge of the other boat and deprived him instantaneously of life. The unfortunate man bled very profusely, the blood running out of the scoopers of the ship into the dock. After washing the blood from the deck, we covered him with a flag called the Union Jack and laid him on the quarter deck until an inquest sat on his body. If I had at that time been in possession of a thousand worlds, I would have given them to have been at home with my old master Fogget. My reflections on this terrible accident rendered me very uncomfortable in mind, and the thoughts of battles, sudden deaths and murders now rushing into my fancy chilled the blood in my veins. As I was then a lad only fifteen years of age, no wonder my alarm should have been so great on the sudden and melancholy death of this officer, especially as I had for what I knew, to remain on board with him during the night, and no one else with me, but I was, in the evening, overjoyed to find that my apprehensions in this respect had been groundless. Next day, I met with my godfather, who had a son on board the Anne, of the name of William Poxon. He took with him the second night, and from him I learnt where an uncle of mine lived, who, when I called upon him and made myself known to him, behaved with much civility to me, After remaining about three weeks with the Anne privateer, I left her for a few days, and should not have returned, had not my uncle embarked on board of the same vessel, which circumstance made me resolve to go with him, let the consequences be what they might. He was one of the prize masters and used to take the management of the ship in turn with the other officers. On the 4th of June, we received a commission from government, acknowledging our vessel as a ship of war, for no private vessel can act as such, unless so commissioned. But, when in commission, private vessels are duly acknowledged by the government, so that all the prizes they take are lawful, and the government has its share of whatever prizes are taken by a privateer. After this, we got out of the dock into Hull Roads, and having waited there two or three days for hands, without being able to get our complement, weighed anchor and dropped down the Humber, and took our station opposite to Great Grimsby, where our captain went on shore in search of more hands, of which we still wanted twenty or thirty to man us completely, our present number consisting of only forty-three men and seven boys, which was not sufficient to work the ship and the guns at the same time. There are required, at least, seven men to a gun, and we had not quite four, but the captain returned to the ship with little or no success. The next day, we again weighed anchor and set sail in quest of some rich East Indiamen belonging to the Dutch who were coming north about from the East Indies. As soon as we got out of the Humber, we steered full north and kept that course till we reached Peterhead, a small seaport in the north of Scotland. To this place, we came about three o'clock in the morning and loaded one of our six pounders and rammed the wadding well home in order to make loud report, which in a short period brought two or three boats from the shore filled with fish. One of the boatmen, coming on board to pilot us, we lay to till afternoon, and our captain went to Peterhead in order to prevail upon some of the sailors to join us. But in this, he was disappointed, as it appeared that the good people of this place were not in the fighting humour. In the afternoon, we sailed due north, keeping that course till the next evening, when we reached the Orkney Isles. This day, the wind blew very fresh. Next day, it was a storm. The ship rolled very much. Sometimes, the yardarms nearly touched the water, and several heavy seas broke in upon our forecastle. To me, who had never been at sea before, the situation was awful. I could not help thinking that the ship would go down, and mentioning my fears to one of the lads who had been at sea once before, he said he thought the same, but that we must keep our thoughts to ourselves. The storm, still increasing, I and the lad just mentioned were ordered aloft to send down the mizzen top gallant yard. I felt reluctant, but was obliged to go, Great as my terror was of falling into the sea. I began to ascend the mast, and with some difficulty reached the mizzen top. I tried to ascend the next stage, and arrived in safety at the cross trees. None but those who have experienced these things can imagine what I felt on this occasion. I suppose these feelings are, more or less, known to all who, for the first time, engage in this sort of employ. After a day or two, dangers and difficulties became familiar to me. I could go even to the extreme of the main top sail yard with as little dread, as if I were walking the deck in calm weather. The storm having abated, we arrived in safety at the Shetland Isles and lay to opposite the port of Lerwick, the capital of this numerous group of islands and received from the inhabitants butter, eggs, milk, worsted hose, nightcaps, and a quantity of small sheep, for which articles they received in return old clothes, which they preferred to money. After we had got what quantity of butter, eggs, and so forth we wanted, the next morning we left Lerick in order to cruise in those seas, and had not got many leagues before we met the Phoebe frigate. She hailed us, and then sent a lieutenant to board us, who called over the names of the ship's company. After he had done this, he ordered five of our men to take their hammocks and chests and to go with him, which they were compelled to do. But it was a gross violation of all law and justice in this fellow to take away our men, especially as we were so short of our number. We continued to cruise on his station for two or three days. On the third day, we met with another frigate. The officer boarded us and called all hands to the quarter deck and after looking at each man returned to his vessel wishing us success in our undertakings the next morning we saw a strange sail ahead sailing before the wind a sure sign to us that all was not right we made all the sail we possibly could in order to overtake her we had our royals and stunsails set for it was a dead calm in a few minutes more another sail was discovered behind making all the haste she could to overtake us She fired several cannons for us to lay to, but being in chase of the first mentioned vessel, we did not wish to lose time by doing so. At length, our suspicions were excited of this vessel, and when she got within musket shot, several shots were fired from her, which crossed the decks, only just passing over our heads. It was now high time to prepare for action which we did by clearing away the chests and removing everything from the decks that seemed to be in the way. Our hammocks were already fixed in the bullocks of our sides of our vessel. All the cutlasses, muskets, pistols and boarding pikes were on deck. Every man was at his station. Every gun loaded with a double charge. One canister and the other a round shot. All the matches were on deck ready lighted. We had also some bars of iron in the galley fire for the bow guns. Not having sufficient matches, and there was I stationed betwixt decks in order to hand up the hot bars of iron, by no means liking my situation and looking anxiously at the size of the vessel, which I expected every moment to see bored by cannonballs. At last, most fortunately, the vessel came alongside, the commander of which said in French, haul down your stun sails or I will fire into you, to which our captain answered by his interpreter, "'You will excuse me, sir. "'I am in chase of the vessel ahead "'and have been for several hours.' "'The commander then demanded "'from whence we came "'and what was our name. "'After answering which question, "'we demanded of them the like information "'and found that she was a privateer "'from the Isle of Jersey, "'a sloop cutter, "'well manned and mounted with sixteen guns. "'The commander and our captain "'now became very friendly "'and joined in pursuit of the other vessels. "'The cutter,' sailed faster than we did and came up with the other vessel about 8 o'clock at night and we got up about 9 after a chase of 16 hours. We manned our boats with armed men from both vessels who boarded the ship without resistance. Our officers having examined their papers which were not satisfactory we forthwith took the ship and made off for the nearest port. She was a very large ship under Danish colours and was homeward bound from the East Indies. Her cargo Consisted of coffee, spices, and silk, with various other articles, the produce of India. We would have gone into the port of Leith, or any of the Scotch ports, but the wind was contrary, and continued so until we reached the mouth of the Humber, into which we sailed with our India prize, which was larger than both our vessels put together. The guardship at the mouth of the Humber boarded our prize to examine her, which they had no business to have done, for the Danish East Indiaman was from a country subject to the plague, so that the guard ship was put under quarantine as well as our own vessels. But the prize was detained much longer than either the guard or ourselves, we being liberated on the third day. While we lay in Hull roads, various were the reports concerning us, some said our cook had lost a part of his foot in the engagement. It is true he had lost a part of his foot, but it was in Greenland several years before this. Others said we had bars of gold throwing about the decks, but all these were idle tales. We lay in hull roads about three or four weeks, expecting to put to sea every day, but the captain, being ill of the gout, and our commission being within a few days of its termination, all hopes of our again putting to sea were given up. On a Sunday morning, in the beginning of August, we weighed anchor and sailed into the new dock. We secured the and there, and all hands left her, except the apprentices, and not one of us got a single farthing, either for wages or prize money. To this day, at least, I never heard of such a thing taking place. I have now due to me from the owners of this vessel, above £3 wages, so that this wonderful was to be something came to nothing. Indeed, it was worse than nothing to spend our time for nearly three months without wages. I remained at Hull about 14 days, and then returned to Louth, with a number of strange and wonderful things to tell my acquaintances and friends concerning to my adventures in the Anne Privateer. Chapter 2 Upon my return to Louth, I was well received by my master, who was a man remarkable for forgiving those that offended him. My grandfather also forgave me, and allowed me six weeks board and lodging under his roof, to afford me an opportunity of improving my circumstances, which, however, at the end of the six weeks, were in no better state than they had been before, in consequence of a reprimand from Mr. A. Eve. I determined not to work any longer at Louth, and went home, got my clothes and set off for Leeds. Scarcely had I reached the village of Elkington near Louth, when my heart misgave me, and instead of proceeding on that road, I crossed the country and arrived at my uncle's at Horncastle that night. I slept at his house and told him I was going to Leeds, my friends at this town said they were sure I should soon become a soldier, but I thought differently. The event will show how much better they knew the tendency of my restless disposition than I did myself. The day after I proceeded to Lincoln, passed through and slept at a village only six miles from the city, situated on the east bank of the Trent. The next morning I set off for Gainsborough, reached it about noon, and when just beyond the bridge leading to Bawtree, a chase overtook me and gave me a lift to that place, where I remained all night. The following morning, I started again. Another chase overtook me, and conveyed me nearly to Doncaster, through which town I passed, and refreshed myself at the Red House, about five miles beyond Doncaster. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds The Leeds coach coming up, I thought I would ride the remainder of my journey. The coachman took me up and whispered in my ear the fare would be four shillings. Very well, was the answer, but I really had only two shillings and three pence in my possession. When we arrived at Leeds, I gave the driver two shillings. He returned the compliment by a sharp cut with his whip, which was not, perhaps unmerited, by the deception I had practised upon him. Off I started for Mr Brumford's carpet factory and immediately got employment there. The next day, I paid my footing, but when Mr Brumford himself saw me, he refused to retain me, saying I was an apprentice. It is true I was an apprentice, but my master and I had parted by mutual consent. I succeeded, however, in obtaining employ under a Mr Howard, who had a small carpet factory at the Nether Mills, known amongst the carpet weavers by the name of the Isle of Patmos. I lodged with a widow, a worthy woman, whose husband had been hanged for horse-stealing, or something the kind, and continued to work at Patmos for three weeks, but the materials being so extremely bad, I could earn but little wages, especially as I'd been used to work upon good stuff at Mr. Eve's factory. One day, when very earnest for work, an accident happened to my winder's wheel. I had to go a mile and a half to a turner to get it mended, proceeding up a street called Kirkgate, I overtook a soldier belonging to the Royal Train of Artillery who looked at me steadfastly and proposed the question whether I would enlist. I answered no when he said he would give me 16 guineas bounty for 7 years service but the answer still was no for I had no inclination whatsoever to enlist. But he still pressed the point until I consented when he gave me a shilling and enlisted me to serve His Majesty George III in the Royal Train of Artillery but being too low in stature, he took me to the colonel of the 68th Durham Regiment of Foot, just returned from the West Indies, who directed him to ask the doctor whether he supposed I should grow any higher, my height being then only 5 feet 1 inch and a half. The doctor ordered me to undress, to ascertain if I was sound, and, having finished his examination, sent me out of the room into a passage to put on my clothes, in which condition people passing might see me. He then made his report to the colonel that I was fit for service. This took place on the 24th of October, 1806. I was then sent to the orderly room of the regiment and remained there that night. The next day, I was before Mr Justice Sheepshanks to be sworn in, the questions being put. Have you fits, or are you an apprentice? To which I answered, no. Are you willing to go? Said the magistrate. I know your master Eve very well. If you don't wish to go, I will set you free. This was very kind of the justice, but I declined his offer, being so strongly bent upon going for a soldier. He then tendered to me the oaths. I took them and have kept and hope to keep them, for I loved old England, and I am sure with good reason, as by experience I know there is no better country in the world. I will here introduce an anecdote respecting this justice. A countryman having some business with him Thought it a strange thing to call him Sheepshanks, and wishing to be a little bit more polite, knocked at the door, and when the servant came said, Does Mr Sheeplegs live here? The servant said. No, but Mr Sheepshanks does, which convinced the man that this was his proper name. I received two pounds in part of my bounty, which was only eleven guineas instead of sixteen, having been sworn in for seven years and six months if at the expiration of that time it should be a peace, or three years longer, if war should continue, and not for a limited period. My bounty was soon spent, although I was no drinker. I scarcely know how it went, but before one month had passed over, not a shilling of it remained. I had taken care, however, to pay my lodgings. The poor old woman, with several others of her sex, wept over me, saying I was some poor body's child. Oh, said these kind-hearted women, he will go abroad and be killed. I answered, Nay. There will soon be a peace, and I shall then return home to enjoy myself. One reason why the poor women felt so much was on account of my youth. Indeed, I was a very young soldier, being only sixteen years of age. The 68th Regiment was raised in the county of Durham in the middle of the last century by General Lambton, In the year 1800, this regiment was filled up by volunteers from the Irish militia, who swelled its number to 2,500. It was then made into two battalions and sent out to the West Indies. They had not, however, been long there, when sickness so reduced them, that the 2nd Battalion was broken up and put into the 1st, and in August 1806, they returned to England, not more than 100 strong. They were at the taking of the island of St Lucia, also at the suppressing of a mutiny in the 8th West India Regiment, on which occasion several men were killed on both sides, but the India Regiment was disarmed and several of the men executed. The principal loss sustained by the 68th Regiment during their stay in the West Indies was by sickness. They were there five years and a half and lost during that period about 2,000 men, Great numbers of the men brought on sickness, disease and in many cases death by the immoderate use of new rum. The bad climate of the West Indies, much aggravated, no doubt, in its effects by the fatal use of spirits, is said to destroy more men than many of our active campaigns, together with hard fighting in various parts of Europe. And this appears to be the case. For few regiments lose in proportion to this 2,000 in a little more than five years. The West Indies, therefore, is frequently called the Grave of Englishmen, and in this instance the phrase will apply correctly. The 68th Regiment went out to the West Indies 2,500 strong. It may be asked what became of the remaining 500, together with the recruits received from England. Several of them were sent home invalided and were discharged. The rest, with the exception of those who had returned with the regiment, had volunteered into other regiments stationed in the West Indies liberty being always given for that purpose, and the men who thus joined other corps received a bounty of three guineas. We continued in Leeds till the 27th of November, and then marched to a pretty little town called Ripon, about 27 miles north of Leeds. At this place I learnt my exercise in the bowling green on the north side of the Minster. I was quartered at the sign of the Laman flag in Skellgate, and afterwards was changed to the sign of the Turks' head, which was kept by a widow called Ellen Steele. She was like a mother to me, and in return for her kindness, I used to help her to brew and turn, or anything of the kind. Opposite to her house was a man of the name of Thexton, who kept a school, and who was so kind as to teach me to read and write. He certainly bestowed considerable attention and labour upon me, so that, through his kind instruction from time to time, I made some little improvement in useful knowledge. I took great delight in this school. Mr. Thexton was a regular visitor at my quarters, being fond of a little beer, though by no means what we call a sot. While at Ripon, we received recruits every week. I was the first recruit that joined the 68th Regiment after they left India. The second was a youth called Forbes. In May and June 1807, we began to increase our numbers rapidly. In August, a large draft from the Irish militia and another from the Durham militia joined us. After this, another draft from the 2nd West York, besides several recruits from many parts of England, Scotland and Ireland, so that, at the end of 1807, we began to look like a regiment. Before this, we were only like a company. The Reverend, the Dean of Ripon, made a present of a great number of prayer books to our men. I received one, and carried it with me into Holland, Portugal and Spain. At this place, one of our Irish recruits, having indulged too freely in drink, lost the government of himself, and meeting one of the officers in the street, knocked him down, told him he was not fit to wear a sword, and ill-treated him very much. The man was confined and brought to a court-martial, and sentenced to receive 150 lashes, at such time and place as the commanding officer should think fit. At length the day arrived when the sentence was to be put into execution, The regiment paraded in the marketplace at the usual hour and then marched the racecourse, formed a square, fixed the halberds and thus prepared to inflict the punishment incurred by the prisoner who at length arrived, escorted by a file of the guard. The judgment of the court-martial was then read which sentenced him to receive the number of lashes above stated. The commanding officer ordered the culprit to strip and the latter reluctantly complied. All of a sudden, a shout of indignation broke forth from the inhabitants, who had followed by hundreds to see the punishment inflicted. Yet, notwithstanding the shouts of the populace, who were violent in the extreme, the sentence was carried into execution. This being the first time I witnessed anything of the kind, I felt very ill, turned sick, and had like to have fallen in the ranks. Indeed, several of my comrades fainted away and were carried out of the square to a distance. Some of the women who had followed screamed and cried. Others of them called the commanding officer every bad name they could invent. Indeed, we were under the necessity of placing sentries round our regimental square to keep off the crowd who had collected in such formidable numbers. The man himself was not silent, although his punishment was comparatively light to what I've seen since that period. His noise, together with that of the people, had the desired effect. For, after receiving 50 lashes, he was pardoned and taken down from the halberds. As we marched home, the inhabitants pelted us with stones and other missiles, calling our officers some very unbecoming names. The people might mean well, but it is absolutely necessary to punish such conduct, or no man could live in the army or navy. On the 3rd of November 1807, the route came for us to march on the 5th from this very delightful and pleasantly situated town, to Doncaster. I often think of Ripon with pleasure. While in it, I visited Studley Park and Fountains Abbey, most delightful and enchanting places. The Minster, too, much pleased me. In short, I left Ripon with a heavy heart. Early on the morning of the 5th of November, the drums beat. We fell in and marched through Boroughbridge to Weatherby, the next day to Ferrybridge and Pontefract, and on the 7th, reached Doncaster. Here we lay for several weeks during the depth of winter and received men from the Scotch, Irish and English militias, besides a number of recruits from different quarters. In February 1808, we left Doncaster and marched through Ferrybridge, Tadcaster and York, to Moulton, at which latter place we remained about seven days, when three companies were sent to Pickering, to one of which I belonged. This little town is pleasantly situated on the main road from York to Whitby. On the 15th of March, however, we left Pickering and Moulton and marched to York and continued there till July 14th. I was very fond of York. We used to parade twice a day in the Minster Yard, Sunday excepted. Whilst at this city, we had a man called Murphy who wanted to scheme his discharge by Sham fits, but having a suspicion they were not real, a large bottle of the spirits of salts was applied to his nose, which made the poor fellow jump up in the greatest agony and promise he would never sham any more. He then joined his company and kept his promise. We had another man who had deserted three times. He was tried by a court-martial and sentenced to be punished. The regiment marched three times to the riding school at the horse barracks for the purpose of inflicting the punishment, and he, every time, fell into a fit so that the punishment was delayed. But the third time, notwithstanding his fits, they tied him up and began to flog him, which soon brought him to himself and let us know that his fits were not real. Had they been so, he probably would have not come to himself in so short a time. His punishment was well-merited, for a man that is regardless of his oath and solemn promise to serve his country, is guilty of a real crime. About three weeks before the half-yearly inspection, We began to prepare for it by going through our evolutions and manoeuvres in the large barrack yard. Towards the latter end of the time, in order that the regiment might learn to be steady, we fired with blank cartridge. A man called Malfrey, about five men from myself to the right of Captain Goff's company, had loaded his piece five times, it missing every time. The sergeant in the rear told him he dare not fire it off. The man declared, if it was full of devils, he would. He did so in the next volley and the consequence was dreadful for his musket bursted into several pieces carrying away a part of his hand and wounding and burning several men who were near him so that this part of our line was thrown into confusion. I saw a dog run away with one of his fingers. The poor fellow was taken to the hospital at these barracks and underwent amputation. One of the other men who had got wounded made ten times the noise the man did who lost his hand. When the general came Malfrey was recommended to the board, and got one shilling a day pension. After this, there was a disturbance between a party of our officers and some women of the town. The Lord Mayor and our Colonel, who lived near to each other, came out to see what was the matter. The Colonel presently received a blow on the head, and the Lord Mayor was driven into his house. This disturbance took place in Coney Street, near the Black Swan Inn, about 11 o'clock at night, and in two or three days afterwards we received orders to march to Doncaster in consequence of this shameful riot. We arrived at Doncaster about the 18th of July. On the 30th, I went on command with two deserters to Stilton Barracks and had only just returned when we received a route for Hull, where we arrived on or about the 16th of August and were quartered in the Ropery Barracks of Wincolny. At Hull, our duty was very hard, having to mount guard three times in the week. The whole of the troops used to parade every morning in George Street at 11 o'clock. Those who mounted the main, garrison and south end guards had to undergo the severe inspection of the brigade major who was a constant plague and torment to the soldiers. He has been known to reject the cleanest man in our regiment and to accept the dirtiest. In the latter end of September, the regiment received a route march to Brabourne Lees in the county of Kent so that we left this brigade major with his militia regiments not being sorry at parting with him, whose constant delight consisted in making men miserable. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.